Welcome back to The Emily Show. This week, we have to talk about everything that's going on in Idaho. Brian Koberger waived his right to speedy trial. What does that even mean? He also wants cameras out of the courtroom and is fighting to get that grand jury thrown out. And what would happen if that happens? Those are the documents and the motions I'm going to be breaking down today. It's a whole bunch of stuff going on in Idaho. And even though this case isn't going to trial in October, the litigation is not slowing down. So let's get right into it. Welcome to The Emily Show. I'm Emily D. Baker, the internet's go-to legal analyst and big fan of the cursey words. I've been a licensed attorney for over 17 years. I'm a former prosecutor, and I break down the legal side of pop culture and entertainment stories we can't stop talking about. We should just get into it. Let's go. A huge thank you to today's sponsor, Lomi. Look, if you have travel plans, especially at the end of summer when it's hot and you don't want to take all the food in your fridge and have it stink in your trash, or you don't want to leave it in your fridge to deal with when you get back, sometimes we have food that's just not going to get eaten, but it doesn't have to go to waste with Lomi. Lomi is a countertop electronic composter that takes your scraps and turns it into dirt in under four hours. So you can use those food scraps to nourish your plants and your garden or your yard. And Lomi really does work just at the push of a button. You put your scraps in, you push the button, you walk away. You don't have piles composting in your yard and you don't have to get in there and turn it, make sure the worms are doing their thing. It is super user friendly. And it's great if you have small spaces and don't have enough yard to turn over to more traditional composting. Turn your waste into nutrient-rich dirt with Lomi. And because you're listening to The Emily Show, I've got a deal for you. Head to Lomi.com slash Lawnard and use the promo code Lawnard for $50 off your Lomi. It's perfect whether you want to start making a positive environmental impact or just grow a beautiful garden. That's $50 off when you go to Lomi.com slash Lawnard and use promo code Lawnard at checkout. Thank you so much, Lomi, for sponsoring this episode of The Emily Show. And let's get back into it. As I said at the top, the big story, even though there's a lot else going on, is that Brian Koberger waived his right to speedy trial. What does that even mean? Well, in Idaho, the right to speedy trial is six months from the time that you are indicted or the time that there's an information after a preliminary hearing. In this case, of course, there was a grand jury. More on that later on, because we're going to be talking all about the grand jury and the defense wanting to throw it out for a couple of different reasons. And they've tried to do that through a couple of different motions. We covered over on YouTube the initial hearings where Koberger's lawyers were arguing a first motion for a stay, a second motion for a stay, trying to pause that speedy trial clock. And at the final hearing, before he waived time, the court revoked one of the stays, the 37-day stay that they had granted, and then did not grant the defense's motion for a second stay for more time to challenge the grand jury. That was a Friday hearing. Attorney Ann Taylor said that she wanted to do a quick status conference the following Wednesday. That's a really short period of time. What is changing between a Friday and a Wednesday? And then the court said, well, if it's just Wednesday and it's just a status conference, we can do it on Zoom. And Taylor said to the court, no, we need to do it in person. And at that point, I went, oh, she's probably going to waive time. This was probably a plan B if these motions were denied. And I don't doubt that Ann Taylor was thinking ahead of if these things are granted, this is the plan. If these things are not, this is the plan. And just needed time to talk to her client, Brian Koberger, about what they were going to do. Came into court on that Wednesday and then went ahead and waived time. The trial date was vacated, meaning that October 2nd start date for trial is off the table. And we know that jurors had already started being summoned to court because judge, judge, yes, for those of you new to the Idaho case with the uh, Idaho University quadruple homicide, the judge's name is John C. Judge. So judge, judge said to the attorneys that he had, in fact, been subpoenaed for that trial. They were seeking to subpoena over a thousand individuals for this jury pool. And of course, they are going to need to pull a substantial jury pool because not only is this a high-profile media case, 
This is a long case um, that will probably take about six weeks by all estimates, though we know sometimes that estimate can go over. It's rare that they go under. They normally go over. It normally takes more time. And it's also a death penalty case. Not all jurors are going to want to um, sit on a death penalty case, would feel right about sitting on a death penalty case. It's much different than your traditional trial where you, as a juror, are the finder of fact. You're determining, did these things happen? And if those things happen, did this person do them? And if this person did them, are they crimes? Or, you know, did this person do these things? Are these things crimes? However way you want to parse it. But with a death penalty case, it's actually the jury that is determining sentences. Normally, you just determine guilt um, or not guilt in a criminal case and liability in a civil case. But in a death penalty case, the jury is determining guilt, but then they're also determining sentencing. And that is unique to death penalty cases where they are determining sentencing in that way. Not everyone will be comfortable casting a vote and making that ultimate decision. So you are going to need more jurors. And then with a high profile case on top of that, you're going to have jurors that might have heard about the case, might have been listening to things about the case, might know about this case in more than a passing way because it is of such intense national and regional interest. So all of those things considered, over a thousand jurors, judge, judge, let the attorneys know that he was going to excuse himself as a juror, but not recuse himself as a judge. So he's Judge Judge is the judge, but Judge Judge is not the juror, if that that makes sense. Yes, I've made that joke more than once. It's fine. I still like it. I'm still going with it. So in all of that, um, Brian Koberger waived the speedy trial right. It is a six-month right. That means that from this point on, if there is good cause from either side, the court can continue the case. And once we looked at that scheduling order, and the scheduling order in this case had very, very tight timelines for a substantial amount of work that I don't think this defense team could get done. And there was actually um, a note by defense attorney Taylor that there is going to be motions down the line to take the death penalty off the table. Defense attorney Taylor argued to Judge Judge that it is forcing um, Brian Koberger to choose between two constitutional rights, the right to a speedy trial and the right to effective assistance of counsel saying that there was so much going on in this case, and I'm sure some of this will get pushed on the prosecution not having certain items of evidence. They're still fighting over discovery. There is now a seventh motion um, asking for discovery. There is still no rulings with regard to the, the DNA and the familial DNA discovery. So there are still discovery things outstanding, but the motion cutoff would have just been in a few weeks, less than two weeks from when I'm recording this. So it was a very tight timeline and defense attorney Taylor's like, I can't adequately represent this defendant in this amount of time. And therefore, um, the sanction on the prosecution should be that the death penalty is off the table. That motion has not been filed yet, but defense attorney Taylor wanted to make sure that A, the prosecution and B, the court were aware that that was a motion that would be coming down the road. We've seen this in Idaho and other cases where the court has actually taken the death penalty off the table as a discovery sanction, but that was a case much different than this um, with discovery issues much later on in the proceedings than this. So we will see what happens as that motion gets made and followed along through judge, judge deciding it. Whether we will get to follow it along with cameras in the courtroom is a very big question because on August 24th, defense attorney Ann Taylor filed a motion to remove cameras from the courtroom after bringing this to the court's attention on the record at that Wednesday hearing that we previously discussed. And that's the first motion we're going to go over today. This is Brian Koberger's defense attorneys making a motion to remove cameras from the courtroom under Article 1, Section 13 of the Idaho Constitution. The first section says, quote, Camera-wielding courtroom observers have failed to obey the court's June 27th directive to cease focusing exclusively on Mr. Koberger, necessitating the expulsion of cameras from future proceedings. Before we get into the rest of this, I've already made a sidebar note. In the Gwyneth Paltrow case, there was a specific order from the court, a written filed order from the court that talked about how cameras were um, to focus, 
what they were to focus on during court, no close-ups of Gwyneth Paltrow's face the entire trial to focus on who's speaking and the podium and wider pan shots in the courtroom. And generally, that's what we saw, though Paltrow's attorney Owens brought to the court's attention a few times um, when he felt that there had been violations of that. And again, that court was set up for trial with a pool camera operated by Court TV that was set up one camera back by the witness box and then other cameras. So the witness box camera would focus out towards the uh, council tables, the parties and the pool. And then there were other cameras that would focus on the judge and the witness stand. So cameras going in different directions. But in that case, there was an order. In this case, the court went on the record and said to the media in general, and we've had a couple of motions with regard to the media in this case already, with regard to the non-dissemination order. So in this case, the court advised from the bench, should the court make an order in this case? Yes. Um, Can the court make an order in this case? Absolutely. Is throwing the cameras out of the courtroom this exact second the least restrictive means necessary to allow this these court proceedings to be attended? No. Uh, I'll get into my feelings about cameras in the courtroom a little more. You probably already know what they are, but let's get through this motion. Otherwise, we're never getting through this motion. It goes on to say, the question presented by this motion is whether Mr. Koberger faces deprivation of his right under the 14th Amendment to due process by the continued, and that's in brackets, televising and broadcasting of his trial. That's coming from Estes versus State of Texas, a 1965 case. And it says, recent press behavior in the courtroom clearly demonstrates that such is the case. Nearly two months ago on June 27, 2023, the court warned press observers not to focus strictly on Mr. Koberger and to show a wide shot of the courtroom if they wish to continue filming court proceedings live. Um, My issue with that is, yes, they are filming court proceedings, but court proceedings are not being simulcast live. They are being released on delay. So all of the recordings of the proceedings are being released after the proceedings are over. And while there have been Zooms of Brian Koberger, and even when I'm watching these on, I guess, tape, on delay, um, I've made comments that this is this is not what the court asked for. And I had concerns and have had concerns and continued concerns throughout. Um, concerns greater than just the miking and the audio of, of this particular courtroom, but concerns that the cameramen were not either told, aware, um, instructed, and it seems to be an ongoing issue, but this is the first time it's being raised again with the court by the defense. And then they share a link to a Fox News story, Brian Koberger judge issues warning to media at start of hearing. And the judge shouldn't have to do this at the start of every hearing. He should just have a standing order on courtroom procedure. And he does have a standing order on quite a lot of things. This should be added to it. It goes on to say press observers have thus far failed to comply with the court's direction as the continued publication of images such as these shown below continues to present day. And they are showing um, images from the AP and Reuters. It's not clear to me if these images are from still cameras in the courtroom. I don't know if there are still cameras in the courtroom or not. or if these are cropped images from the news feeds, because these aren't full screen images. You can't, these are not full screen images. So these are cropped somehow. But some of these have a bouquet in the background so that, not like a flowers, like the blur, the background's blurred, that make them look as if they are from a still camera. I don't know, because they are talking about these being photos. Um, So it seems to me from this, that these are photos that they are uh, frustrated with at this point in the motion. It goes on to say these photos, a blatant violation of the court's directive to cease focusing exclusively on Mr. Koberger in their own right, are also later appended to the articles with blatantly sensationalistic and prejudicial headlines and content the rightmost of the three photos above being used in an August 22nd, 2023 Daily Beast article titled, Report Says Koberger's Creepiness with Women Goes Back to High School. And then they link the Daily Beast article. 
It goes on to say, further, the camera's continued exclusive focus on Mr. Koberger provides fodder for observers and purported quote-unquote analysts on social media who are not bound by the notions of journalistic integrity, this is an awkward sentence, and who have potentially an even greater reach than traditional media outlets. The proliferation of these images and videos is plainly observable on social media platforms such as TikTok and X, formerly Twitter, in posts such as those provided below. And the posts provided below are seemingly not from news outlets. They are seemingly um, grabs from Twitter. They are linked uh, below the images. One of them says, is Brian Koberger, or hashtag Brian Koberger, afraid of heights because his fly is with a zoomed-in screen grab of his belt buckle and his pants, maybe a jar? I don't know. There's another one of him cropped in walking into the courtroom that the tweet, what do you call it if it's on any, the tweet? I'm going with the tweet. What's he so GD happy about? He's not getting an award. He's getting tried for murder. Hashtag Brian, Brian Koberger, photo courtesy of the at Lewiston Tribune. So these seem to be Still photos, but it's hard to tell. Thank you to our sponsor, Fast Growing Trees. Fastgrowingtrees.com has thousands of easy-to-grow plants, shrubberies, and tree varieties expertly curated for your unique climate and needs. From Mayor lemons to evergreens to shade trees and everything in between, you don't have to wait in long lines or haul heavy plants around or not find exactly what you want. With fastgrowingtrees.com, you order online and your plants arrive at your door in just a few days. And with them arriving at your door, you actually have a 30-day alive and thrive guarantee. So you know everything will look great fresh out of the box. And Fast Growing Trees has plant experts that have specialized degrees and training to help you troubleshoot everything from root to leaf. It's like telehealth for your plants, which is really incredible, even if you're trying to figure out what you need to plant, what you want to plant for your climate, what you want for in your home, or if you're like us and you have a home that has not a lot of direct light. And I love our houseplants. If you've never seen an alligator fern, go look. They are super cool. Join almost 2 million happy Fast Growing Trees customers. Go to fastgrowingtrees.com slash lawnard now to get 15% off your entire order. 15% off at fastgrowingtrees.com slash lawnard. Thank you again, Fast Growing Trees, for sponsoring this episode. Let's get back into it. It goes on to say, as the press itself notes in the court's June 27th admonition, the court, quote, referenced the recent Chad Daybell trial when cameras were asked to leave because they focused too much on the defendant. Fox 13, Seattle, titled Idaho Judge Reigns in Court Cameras in Brian Koberger Evidence Hearing as Trial in Student Murders Looms, and that's a June 27th, 2023 article link. It goes, indeed, such a parallel was drawn in the defense's prior memorandum on cameras during hearings, yet camera-wielding courtroom observers remain undeterred. It's interesting that they keep using courtroom observers because these, the cameras that are allowed in are media. There's a pool camera, and it seems like a pool still camera. The motion goes on to quote uh, the Estes case again, saying the chief function of our judicial machinery is to ascertain the truth. The use of television, however, cannot be said to contribute materially to this objective. Rather, its use amounts to the injection of an irrelevant factor into court proceedings. I'm going to have to reread this case because I think the jury function of finding truth should not be deterred by cameras one way or the other. The function of having public and open courts is aided by having cameras in the courtroom, in my opinion, and I think can be aided, particularly in smaller jurisdictions, where you don't need the whole of the world descending upon a jurisdiction for a trial with people lined up and creating a circus-like atmosphere. One would hope that cameras in the courtroom would ameliorate that rather than exaggerate that. I think there's an argument that in some cases, cameras in the courtroom have exaggerated the interest in the case um, and those then being there in person. but. I think that is the rarer circumstance um, than cameras in the courtroom allowing people to cover the case without being in court, needing overflow courts, and without the media and the public fighting for seats in court. And 
at prior hearings for Brian Koberger, members of the media had asked civilians, members of the public, to kind of either move over or give up a seat to allow them to sit. And the media doesn't really take priority. And if you have a pool camera, then the media doesn't have to try to take priority in the courtroom. Um, I think we definitely need civilian observers in addition to media observers in court. Continuing on, it says, as has previously been argued, the circumstances present in Mr. Koberger's case are singular and pose an extraordinary risk of prejudice beyond even that posed in Estes. Observers continued failure. I mean, I don't know why they're not calling it the media. It's not like everybody in that courtroom has a camera. They don't. It says observers continued failure to comply with the court's June 27th directive compounds this problem and results in the potential jury pool's constant inundation with conclusory accusations and sensationalistic nonsense guised as factual reporting and analysis. It goes on to say, whereas in Estes, the attendant risk of prejudice was limited to potential jurors watching of television or reading of print media, now this risk follows the potential jury pool wherever they go, viewable on their smartphones and constantly updated by thousands of unchecked sources. Are we assuming that other sources are checked? I don't know about that. He goes on to quote the Estes case again, saying each juror carries with him into the jury box these solemn facts and thus increases the chance of prejudice that is present in every criminal case. It is not only possible, but highly probable that it will have a direct bearing on his vote as to guilt or innocence. The motion goes on to say the images and videos provided above were taken during pretrial court proceedings, but pose no less danger. To the contrary, they gradually poison the potential jury pool prior to trial, even occurring, winnowing the number of jurors able to render a just, unbiased verdict. Quoting that, the Estes case again, it says, quote, to the extent that television shapes sentiment, it can strip the accused of a fair trial, end quote. Goes on to say the Estes court itself noted that the unrestricted television coverage can be coercive to non-trial proceedings and preemptively limit the potential for an eventual fair verdict. And they quote the case saying, it is contended that this two-day pretrial hearing cannot be considered in determining the question before us. We cannot agree. Pretrial can create a major problem for a defendant in a criminal case. Indeed, it may be more harmful that publicity during the trial for it may well set the community opinion as to guilt or innocence. Though the September hearings dealt with motions to prohibit television coverage and postpone the trial, they are unquestionably relevant to the issue before us. So the court in Estes is saying that even pretrial motions, and maybe even more than trial, pretrial motions being shown could prejudice a defendant's ability to get a fair trial because it could taint the jury pool even more so than a trial. Because at a trial, the jurors are under court order to not look at the media, not look at social media, et cetera. But the jury pool is the pool of humans that live in this area. So anyone could be exposed to this on social media. And that's the, what the defense is asking the court to take into consideration in light of this 1956 case which was, of course, deciding the case dealing with some television and print media. The motion goes on to say, as such, far from constituting an undue and over-restrictive burden on the press's right of free speech, expulsion of cameras used to flout the court's limited directive that Mr. Koberger not be the sole focus of images and videos taken is the sole means of limiting what the Estes court expressly recognized to be, quote, a form of mental, if not physical, harassment quote, the inevitable close-ups of his gestures and expressions during the ordeal of his trial might well transgress his personal sensibilities, his dignity, his ability to concentrate on the proceedings before him, sometimes the difference between life and death. And then in parentheses, as indeed it is here, dispassionately, freely, and without the distraction of wide public surveillance. Quote, a defendant on trial for a specific crime is entitled to his day in court, not a stadium or a city or a nationwide arena. That all comes from Estes. The motion says, similarly, Mr. Koberger is entitled to defend himself against capital criminal charges without cameras focused on his fly. And on that part, I don't disagree with them. There has to be a balance. And I think the wide shots of the courtroom are a fair balance. And something that I've complained about in, uh, in this 
particularly every time they zoom in, I'm like, please stop it. I'm worried about this in the Corey Richens case as well, where it seems that cameras zoom in attempting to catch her conversations with her attorneys, which should never be happening in a courtroom. A defendant has limited ability to speak to their defense attorney, and they should be able to speak to one another in whispered voices and hushed tones without cameras trying to capture what they are saying. And so I think we're going to start seeing courts finding ways to have some some sort of guidelines that are just a part of the decorum order in court if cameras are allowed that are going to be very um, strict. And I think this judge already seems disinclined to acquiesce to the media. So I, I think judge judge is sitting there going, give me a reason, give me a reason, give me a reason. And I will get cameras right out of this courtroom. It goes on to say, in heading two, observers continued minute scrutiny of counsel table is violative of the court's May 16th order governing courthouse and courtroom conduct and distracting to defense counsel. In addition to the inordinate and exclusive focus on Mr. Koberger, and again, these moments to me, I have watched every moment in court in this case so far, the moments of them zooming in on Koberger aren't the entire hearing. Um, I don't remember if it was before the court said this in June, but since that time, there will be times that they focus on him, particularly when he's coming in and time during the proceedings. It is not as if it is just a camera trained on Koberger's face and nothing else. We are seeing counsel table who's speaking at the podium, the witnesses. But yes, they are still zooming in on Koberger's face when he is not speaking and he has spoken very little. He has pled. He has waived his right for speedy trial. So. There is a difference between zooming in on his face and focusing on the person speaking at the podium with him in the background. Talking about counsel table, it says, courtroom observers have routinely violated the court's May 16th, 2023 order providing in part that, quote, no video or still photograph shall be taken of any papers, documents, or notes which may be located on or around counsel tables or used by counsel. This noncompliance is clearly demonstrated in the below provided photos taken during the most recent hearing and has continuously undermined the court's stated interest in maintaining order and an environment that permits all participants to focus on their responsibilities without undue distractions, end quote. Aware of the constant attention paid to counsel table and the risk that confidential and sensitive information could be scrutinized, photographed, and published, defense counsel has been forced to divert their attention to ensure notes and other materials are hidden from prying eyes, which again is a fair complaint from uh, Ann Taylor and others. For me, the thing that's difficult is when showing the courtroom shot, there are times that the computer has been turned or somebody's laptop has been turned so you can see them. In this, they attach or they clip in two clips from YouTube, one from KTVB and one from Law and Crime that shows defense table. One of them shows a file open. I can't clearly see what's on the pages. And the other one shows um, the laptop open with individuals on Zoom. It goes on to say this exact content was found by the Estes court to be a circumstance depriving the petitioner of a fair trial. And then quoting that case again, it says the petitioner was subject to characterization and minute electronic scrutiny to such an extent that at one point the photographs were found attempting to picture the page of paper from which he was reading while sitting at counsel table. And that shouldn't be happening. In any case, what's happening at counsel table, yes, we want to see what is happening at counsel table. Um, during Depp v. Heard, seeing Ben Chu turn around and kind of like fist, fist bump or fist pump like when Kate Moss's name came up, was a really interesting moment in court where you're like, oh, he's picked up on something. You saw those interactions at counsel table. But no one should be focusing on what's on counsel's computer, what's on counsel's notes on their, their table. They need to be able to do their job. So with that, I have a ton of empathy for Koberger's attorney saying, we need to do our job. We can't also fight what's going to be shown. And we saw this come into play quite a lot during the Murdoch trial where Council was at times trying to 
cover their screens or not cover their screens or figure out when they needed to cover pieces of evidence. And even then there were times where counsel had things in their hand and it got flashed on camera and then ended up all over the internet when it shouldn't be because the internet. The motion goes on to say, whereas in Estes, this conduct was characterized as a singular and extreme occurrence in this case, it has become disruptively routine and must be abated if Mr. Koberger is to receive effective representation. The conclusion says the press have failed to obey the court's directive not to exclusively photograph and record Mr. Koberger to the exclusion of all else, jeopardizing his ability to undergo fair judicial proceedings free of undue prejudice and juror bias. As such, cameras must be expelled from the courtroom for the duration of Mr. Koberger's case, including pretrial hearings as well as trial itself. And it might happen in this case. I don't know if the media will seek to intervene again. The media had an attorney for a media coalition. Um, Law and Crime was part of that coalition. I don't remember exactly if Court TV was a part of that coalition, but that media coalition might have their attorney trying to respond to this. The hearing for this is on September 1st, or at least that's when Ann Taylor has asked for the hearing to be. I have not seen anything filed by the media asking to keep motion or cameras in the courtroom. And I doubt the prosecution is going to speak up one way or the other on this, and they are just going to stay out of it. I imagine that's exactly what they're going to do. The the prosecution's not going to sit there and be like, well, actually, they only showed his face for two minutes out of a 35-minute court proceeding. The, the prosecution doesn't care. They're like, cameras, no cameras, whatever. Um, because for the prosecution, they would be able to arrange for Zoom access to court for victims' families who were unable to be in the courtroom. So they would still be able to have some closed access for family members um, that wanted to be able to see the proceedings. So they would still, I imagine, provide for that in some way in a closed Zoom setting for family members and accommodate them in that way. So I don't know if cameras in the courtroom are going to be the only way that the prosecution can accommodate um, victims' families, the university community and others. The media might come in and argue that, that look, the community um, wants to be a part of that, but I doubt it. And I don't think we'll see the prosecutors arguing it in this case. Different than the Brooks case where the prosecutors talked about how the entire community was so impacted by the crime because it happened at a community Christmas parade. Um, it seemed that almost everyone in the community was impacted directly in some way. And there was just no way to accommodate all of them being present in court or in overfilled courtrooms, and that allowing for the trial to be televised was the best way to accommodate the very large community that had been impacted. I don't think we'll see the prosecution arguing that on behalf of the university community here or just the the local community there. Um, but we'll see if they file anything. I just would be very surprised if they did. Next, we're going to look at the motion to dismiss the indictment, kind of. This is technically the second motion to dismiss the indictment. Then we're going to look at a response to the first motion to dismiss the indictment. The first motion to dismiss the indictment I covered on live stream, and it was going through a very lengthy scholarly retelling of the history of the law of Idaho and why the standard for an indictment should be beyond a reasonable doubt and not probable cause. It is currently probable cause in all of the jurisdictions, the same as a preliminary hearing. So we will look at the prosecution's response to that next. But this is the second motion to dismiss. So we, we're clear there's two now causes that the defense is asking to dismiss the indictment. One, on the jury being instructed on the wrong standard, the grand jury being instructed on the wrong standard. And two, well, most of it's under seal, but we're going to look at what we can. Y'all know that when I started streaming regularly on YouTube, my channel started to grow tremendously. And then the law nerds were like, I need that on a mug. I need that on a shirt. And I went to Shopify at like midnight because ADHD and built the Lawnard shop at lawnardshop.com. And it has been thriving on the Shopify platform since 2020. All because of you. You guys are like, we need that. And I'm like, okay. But Shopify made it so simple that the barrier between me saying something online and y'all saying we need to do that and it getting done is so fast because Shopify makes it so easy. 
Shopify is the commerce platform revolutionizing millions of businesses worldwide, including my own. Whether you are a solo entrepreneur starting out in your garage, which is actually where I started streaming from, or IPO ready, Shopify is the only tool you need to start, run, and grow your business without the struggle. Shopify puts you in control of every sales channel, whether you're selling satin sheets from Shopify's in-person POS or offering laundered mugs in Shopify's all-in-one e-commerce platform. You're covered. Shopify has the internet's best converting checkout to help you turn browsers into buyers. And what I love is that with Shopify, I can easily add the Law Nerd merch, not just onto Instagram sales channels and Facebook, but also onto YouTube. So when you see it below my YouTube videos, that's all powered by Shopify too. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the US and Shopify is truly a global force powering Allbirds, Rothy's, Brooklinen, The Lawnard Shop, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 170 countries. And you know Shopify's award-winning support is there to help you make your shop a success at every step of the way. And because you're here with The Emily Show, you get a discount that I wish I had when I started this shop up. Sign up for a $1 per month trial at shopify.com slash lawnard. Go to shopify.com slash lawnard to take your business to the next level today. Shopify.com slash lawnard. Lawnard is in lowercase. All right, lawnards. Let's get back to today's episode. And thank you so much, Shopify, not just for hosting the lawnard shop, but for sponsoring this episode of The Emily Show. This is the motion to dismiss indictment on grounds of biased grand jury, inadmissible evidence, lack of sufficient evidence, and prosecutorial misconduct in withholding exculpatory evidence. Now, remember, at a grand jury, different than a trial jury, the prosecution is the only one submitting evidence to the grand jury. The defense is not present at those proceedings. There is not cross-examination, but there are still rules, and presenting exculpatory evidence is one of those rules. I'm very curious as to what that exculpatory evidence is, if this is regarding DNA and potential other DNA profiles that we've heard about in the um, in the discovery motions, or if they were supposed to submit that he was out driving at night, if they knew that in some way. So I'm very interested in what that is. We're not going to really know because all of the legal memorandum is filed under seal. This is the notice. This motion is based on the state's various violations during the grand jury pursuant to Idaho Code 19-1001, Idaho Criminal Rules 6.7 and 48, Idaho Rules of Evidence 401, 402, 403, 404, 404, B, 601, 602, 608, 701238, 801C232, 804A3, 901902. So different types of character evidence, expert evidence, hearsay, things like that. It goes on to say Mr. Koberger raises 24 issues, which are set forth in the full memorandum in support of motion to dismiss the indictment and its attachments. Now, the court granted an order to file that under seal so that all of the details of what was presented to the grand jury, what was arguably not presented to the grand jury, is not public information. That could be to protect witnesses, that could be to protect the case, that could be to protect their position of the case, there could be a lot of reasons that the defense strategically chose to keep the details of that under wraps. And I'm not surprised given how uh, closely held the facts of this case, the investigation or any ongoing investigation has been since the beginning. Because again, in a case this high profile, 23 different items are going to be discussed quite a lot. Well, we're not going to see them discussed because we're not going to see much other than a ruling at some point. I'm going to get into the prosecution's response to the fact that the defense is arguing the grand jury was instructed on the wrong standard. And then we're going to talk about what happens if the grand jury is, for some reason, thrown out. This filing is from August 16th from the prosecution. It is their objection to defendant's motion to dismiss the indictment on grounds of error in grand jury instructions. So the defense is attacking the grand jury in two ways. This harkens back. To the first one, the state submits this objection to address the defendant's assertion that the standard of proof in a grand jury proceeding is beyond a reasonable doubt. Far from novel, defendant's argument has made numerous appearances throughout the state in recent years. Even those pushing this jarring theory are forced to concede, quote, the whole of modern jurisprudence on this issue is against it. And to the state's knowledge, 
every court in the state that has addressed this argument has soundly rejected it. Not surprised. The prosecution then attaches two decisions um, in the state on these types of motions. So this is not the first time a defense attorney has made this motion with regard to a grand jury indictment, and it sounds like it is something that is happening within the state of Idaho. So the prosecution probably wasn't surprised that it came up here and cites two different cases, which is why this memo was 71 pages, because there are multiple exhibits that are full court rulings. It goes on to say, for the reasons explained below, the law requires this court join the growing list of jurists. The state incorporates as part of its objection the reasoning in the decisions attached as exhibits A, B, and C. Heading A, the Idaho Supreme Court has held probable cause as the correct standard of proof for a grand jury. Now, the defense conceded this in their motion and said, but they got there through a long line of law that should be overturned. So they're asking this district judge to overturn the Idaho Supreme Court's ruling, and then it would go back up to the Idaho Supreme Court, and it's likely that the Idaho Supreme Court would be like, we said what we said, and that's not happening. The motion goes on to say defendant's argument that the beyond a reasonable doubt standard applies to grand jury proceedings is in direct conflict with Idaho Supreme Court precedent. Defendant seems to acknowledge as much, but asks this court, quote, to recognize what he claims is the, quote, long string of error that led us here. And then led is spelled L-E-A-D, and they put in a sick in their attorneys. Just being like, it goes on to say defendant's request ignores one of the most basic tenets of our legal system. The Idaho Supreme Court, quote, has been and remains the final arbiter of Idaho rules of law. And that's coming from State v. Guzman. The Idaho Supreme Court has declared, quote, the primary purpose of a grand jury proceeding is to determine probable cause, State me Edmondson. This court is duty-bound to apply that controlling precedent and reject defendant's argument to the contrary. Goes on to say defendant claims that the court's numerous probable cause statements in Edmondson were, quote-unquote, dicta. The next sentence is a complete one. Nonsense. Period. They are not having this motion at all. Nonsense. A statement from the Idaho Supreme Court is only dicta, quote, if the statement is not necessary to decide the issue presented. Stevie Hawkins. And Seminole Tribune versus Florida. The statements in Edmondson that probable cause is the standard of proof for grand jury proceedings were necessary to at least two of the court's holdings. If you are asking yourself, so wait, the lawyers are arguing what the court meant when they said certain words and whether those certain words apply to certain holdings? Yes. Law school is three years. It feels like 15. Splitting hairs is basically what you do for three years because that is how you argue the law, right? Write down those hairs. Um, so the defense is like, it's just dicta. And the prosecution's like, it's a necessary to the holding and not, in fact, dicta. The motion goes on to say, first, the court held a prosecutor's decision to use a grand jury rather than a preliminary hearing does not violate equal protection. Central to the court's rationale was the determination that a grand jury proceeding and a preliminary hearing serve the same purpose and have the same standard of proof. And then they're citing that case saying the purpose of a grand jury proceeding and a preliminary hearing is to determine probable cause. Any advantage that a preliminary hearing affords a defendant is purely incidental to that purpose. The independent grand jury's function would be duplicated by requiring a subsequent preliminary hearing. Both of them are probable cause proceedings that go forward in very different ways. And that is at the prosecutor's choice. They can choose to do grand jury. They can choose to do a preliminary hearing. I think most defendants would prefer a preliminary hearing. They see the witnesses against them and how they testify. Their attorney gets to cross-examine witnesses and ask questions. But it is the prosecutor's choice to decide how they want to go forward from charging document to information or indictment. And remember, at the beginning of this case, and I wonder if this is part of why Koberger's attorneys are frustrated, at the beginning of this case, they waived the time for preliminary hearing. And it was my suspicion at that time that part of the reason they were waiving the time for preliminary hearing is so they didn't have to waive time for trial. They could buy themselves more time from the time of the arrest. And then right before the preliminary hearing date, the prosecution went to a grand jury and got an indictment and did not do a public preliminary hearing and then went forward from there. And then we now know that trial has been since waived 
either way. The motion goes on to say, moreover, Idaho's appellate courts have repeatedly applied Edmondson's equal protection holding as binding precedent, which means this court must do the same. Binding means just that. Like you have to follow, you have to follow it. It's it's the precedent. You follow the precedent. If the Supreme Court says it's probable cause, then the court is duty bound to find probable cause. I think at the end of the day, this motion is not going to go very far and this court will hold as other courts clearly in the state have held. I'm very curious about the other motion and we're not going to know a lot about it. Isn't that unfortunate? The motion goes on to say, in any event, post Edmondson, the Idaho Supreme Court has consistently applied the probable cause standard to evidence presented to the grand jury. And then it goes on to cite more case law on that and then cites legislation on that point as well. With that, the prosecutor continues to make the same point that this is the law of the land and the court must follow the law of the land. So that leaves us really with the question. If the grand jury is thrown out, if the indictment is thrown out, then what? Well, then the prosecutor can refile the charges, do another grand jury, and we end up back here anyway. If it is thrown out, there is still another opportunity for the prosecution to continue to prosecute Brian Koberger. Could they choose to do a preliminary hearing next time? I mean, they could. I think it would be unlikely if they chose to do a grand jury for the first time. I have to assume it was for a reason. And they could choose to just impanel another grand jury and do it again, based on whatever the court's ruling is. If the court finds that there was misconduct, that could cause other problems. There might be other prosecutors that get assigned to this case. We'll have to see what happens with the court's ruling, which we're probably not going to know for quite a while. But even if at the end of the day, which I still think is unlikely, but again, we've seen kind of the basis of the defense allegations. We have not seen the heart of them. So it's harder to ascertain. Even if the grand jury indictment is set aside or dismissed by the court, the prosecution can continue to prosecute Brian Koberger. If it is thrown out again, then we're going to reach a a point where it is unlikely there's more they can do unless there's a mistrial. But if there are issues with the charging document, it gets thrown out again before trial, then there is a bigger problem. But on the first charging document, it can just be refiled. And finally, there is a seventh motion for discovery that we are going to take a look at together real quick. If you're saying, Emily, this feels like a lot of litigation. Yes, it is a death penalty case. There's going to be a lot of litigation. Defendant's seventh supplemental request for discovery filed August 25th. Please take notice that the undersigned pursuant to Rule 16 of the Idaho Criminal Rules, the 4th, 5th, 6th, 8th, and 14th Amendments of the Constitution, and Articles I, 1, 2, 13, and 17 of the Constitution of Idaho, request discovery and inspection of all materials discoverable to defendant per Idaho Criminal Rules 16b1 through 8 and the aforementioned constitutional provisions. Under seal, Exhibit F, attached to the defendant's seventh request for supplemental discovery. I said it was going to be real quick. A lot of this case has been under seal. A lot of the argument and discovery ongoing has been regarding the DNA, but this could be other things. They have cited most of the constitutional provisions that apply here, saying the prosecution is under an ongoing obligation to provide discovery, which is true. I think this was probably filed not because they are fighting over something, but because the defense is keeping a paper trail of everything they have requested for appeal. The defense in this case has been tremendously thorough. When at the beginning of the case, there was a death penalty qualified public defender assigned to this case. And we talked a bit about death penalty qualification, the type of cases you would have done, the amount of experience that you would need you are seeing Ann Taylor's experience in the way that this case is being litigated. Uh, No stone left unturned, very thorough, and a very extensive motion practice preserving things for appeal because if Brian Koberger is convicted, it will be appealed and those appeals can carry on for years, if not decades in death penalty cases. So you are seeing really kind of the top end of 
of the amount of work that goes into a criminal case like this, which is one of the reasons I wanted to cover this case. And we have seen, though I don't appreciate all of the motions, mostly because I was like, oh my God, we've gone so far back in history with this motion. It is wild. But I really do have a tremendous amount of respect for the work that these attorneys are doing here. And I'm very interested to continue to watch how they do their jobs um, and, and how they litigate this case. They have at every turn, it seems, preserved this case uh, for appeal if Brian Koberger is convicted. And I think it's a really, a really good example of the way you want to see a case of this seriousness not just prosecuted, but also defended because the defense attorneys taking every opportunity to make sure they are absolutely as effective as possible protects this case down the road um, on appeal. And the same for prosecutors being diligent at every turn as they should be. It protects this case if there is a conviction for appeal. So it's a lot of litigation. It really is more than most criminal cases, even more than most homicide cases. Most homicide cases do not have this level of paper uh, litigation in pretrial. And we're not even into motions in limine, doctors, experts, sentencing um, experts, and things like that. We are really in still the beginning stages of litigation in this case, which is why I think we saw that waiver of speedy trial. No, there's not a new date set. They're going to confer after the September 1st hearing. I will be covering the September 1st hearing back on live stream next week. And with that, Law Nerds, thank you for being here. It's pumpkin spice time. So thank you for being here. <laughs> Say it with me. May your Wi-Fi be strong. May your toilet paper be plentiful. May your August launch of the pumpkin cream cold brew be delicious. If you're a pumpkin spice latte kind of a human, I hope that is amazing as well. If you're like, miss me with all the pumpkin chatter, I'm sorry. I will stop sometime in January. I am ready for fall to be here. I am ready for cooler weather. I am ready for it not to be sweaty weather, but to be sweater weather. I'm ready. <laughs> Bring me the sweater weather, not the sweaty weather. I can't believe it's the end of August, Law Nerds. Take care of yourselves. Take care of each other. Did I not finish? I didn't. I didn't. May your pumpkin spice be plentiful. And may the odds be ever in your favor. I will see you in the next one. You can find more Law Nerd goodness in our private Law Nerd community over at lawnerdsunite.com. And if you want to stay up to date with everything I'm covering, you can follow me on social media at the Emily D. Baker. I stream on YouTube on Tuesdays and Thursdays, and I recap those streams for those of you a little pressed for time over on the Quick Bits podcast and Quick Bits YouTube channel. Thanks for being a Lawnard. <laughs>